Hi, welcome to another episode of Identity Unveiled with me, Shweta Pillai, and my co-host, Diane Yu. At Identity Unveiled, we are passionate about giving voice to the stories behind the Asian American women breaking barriers and to tapping into experts that can provide tips, guidance, and the latest trends so that other Asian American women can live their best life on the path to breaking their own barriers. If you aren't already following us on Instagram, be sure to check us out. This year, we have several experts lined up to talk to you about Asian women health, relationships, beauty, and of course, tips to help you better manage your career aspirations. In this episode, we interviewed Barbara Adachi. I met Barbara when I was a consultant with Deloitte's human capital practice. Deloitte is one of the largest professional services firm in the world. It is known as being a part of the big four, a nickname for the four largest professional services firms in the world that provide accounting and consulting services. Collectively, the big four audit more than 80% of all U.S. public companies. Last year, Deloitte reported nearly $23 billion in sales, with a workforce of more than 120,000 employees globally. Consulting comprises more than 50% of their revenue. Now, consulting jobs are highly sought after among college graduates, especially with the big four. It is highly competitive and once in, the work is intense. The travel can be grueling and the days are long, with 60 to 80 hour work weeks being the norm. It's a trade-off though, to the steep learning curve and somewhat entrepreneurial nature of the vast experiences and projects that employees have the opportunity to work on. Barbara is a third generation Japanese American. She was the first minority and female partner to lead the national human capital consulting business at Deloitte. Barbara's passion is advancing women's leadership and is a champion of diversity and inclusion. She served as national managing principal for Deloitte's award-winning women's initiative or WIN for the entire U.S. firm from 2007 to 2011 achieving a significant milestone of a thousand women partners, principals, and directors. Named one of the 100 most influential women in business by the San Francisco Business Times for 10 consecutive years, Barbara was then endowed as forever influential. She's also been honored as part of the Working Mothers Hall of Fame. In 2020, Barbara received the CEDAW Women's Human Right Award for international comedy. The accolades and achievements go on and on. Needless to say, she is a force for advancing women leaders in the workforce. What we love about our interview with Barbara is how she embraces the strength of her Japanese culture in her leadership. We also love that she professes to be a shopaholic. If there is one thing you can't forget about Barbara, it is her keen sense of style. Always immaculately dressed and professionally poised, with a warmth and openness that other leaders should aspire to emulate. So I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. So if you're familiar with LA at all, you know, at the time, you know, for Japanese Americans and for Blacks and all minorities, there are really kind of redlined areas of LA where you could buy property. So my parent, I grew up in a very 
kind of poor neighborhood, as I would explain. I grew out, grew up very close to where the Watts riots were and where Rodney King got murdered and really South Central LA. So, you know, I only knew what I knew growing up and I didn't realize we lived with my grandparents until I was probably six or seven and then we're able to buy a house and we moved into this area, which was predominantly black. And then, then the second largest group were Japanese Americans who could afford to buy a home and, and also were allowed to buy a home in these certain neighborhoods. So, yeah, I, in really great time. I mean, I'm very close to my family. My parents, unfortunately, are both gone now, but my brother still lives in, in Southern California and we're very close. But I had a very kind of traditional Japanese upbringing. My parents, neither one of them went to college. So I was the first person in my family to go to college. My parents were so dead set on my brother and I going to college. They were obsessed with it because neither one of them went. So my mom was actually in one of the internment camps uh, where they, during World War II, Hmm. where they sent all of the Japanese Americans to these camps throughout um, the West Coast area. She was happened to be in one in Arizona. My father was uh, on the East Coast at the time, so he did not have to go to one of the camps. But I think that had an influence on us and kind of their appreciation of life and their appreciation of just everything that we had. And so my mom was a bookkeeper at the produce market. My father was a gardener, which was a very traditional Japanese occupation. And so, you know, but, it, you know, college, they just felt for my brother and I, you just have to go to college because you just have to have a better life than we were able to have. And and that really, that sacrifice that they made for us to go, you know, is something that I'm really grateful for. My mom, you know, worked in the afternoons at a pizza parlor to make enough money. I had to work my way through college. And so I had a job from the time I was 16 to save money to go to school. So, you know, I think I'm very lucky, fortunate, blessed to have had the parents that I had who I think for me gave me a really strong sense of optimism. Mm -hmm. And there's a Japanese word that I love to use and because my father would often say it and it's it's called gumbaru. And what it means is never, ever, ever give up. So all of the things around persistency and resiliency, you know, I never knew that we were struggling. Do you know what I mean? We always had food on the table and I always had clothes and, you know, and I was able to go to college. And so I never knew what they had given up or had, how hard they had to work to give us what we had. And you said, you know, we skipped over something that was really huge. You said your mom was in the internment camps. Yes. When did she get out and when did she meet your dad or how did that all happen? So my grandparents, my mom was the youngest of seven children. And so in when World War II came about and they moved all of the Japanese into these internment camps in California, all the Japanese Americans from the West Coast, basically, because they were fearing an invasion from Japan. So my mom was only 19 at the time, so but it was much harder on her parents than and her older siblings because they had jobs. My grandfather lost his business, which was a produce company. Now, they were very fortunate because their neighbors, their black neighbors, saved their house from being ransacked or, or sold. Uh, they watched it for them. Uh, so they were in camp for, you know, four years. And then my mom... And dad met much later after camp because my dad was actually living in New York. And he tells stories of driving across the country and being stopped in Texas in particular and escorted by a sheriff all the way through town 
he and his friend were driving across country. So they faced a lot of prejudice as well. But he did not have to go to camp because he was already on the East Coast at the time of the internment. So that certainly had an impact on them. By the way, I didn't learn about till I went to college. So I went, this was not in the textbooks. It was not talked about at all in school. And I was studying American history in college and I found out about it. And I remember coming home and saying to my mom, did, were you guys in these camps? Were you in these concentration camps? And they, and they said, yes. And my mom said, yes. She said, yeah. She goes, that's because I remember her talking about meeting people in camp. Oh yeah. I know him from camp. I was thinking it was like summer camp. I never (laughs) thought of it as like a camp where the whole family was moved to these barrack type facilities and living in for, you know, in the middle of the nowhere, middle of deserts, et cetera. But my mom was so young at the time that she she still believed that it was for their own good that they got moved. So my mom's outlook on this was, well, you know, we're Americans. And the reason that we were put there was for our own protection so that if the Japanese invaded the U.S., which were the enemy at the time, that we would not be like shot down or something. But my mom was still, you know, not a teenager, You know, so she really didn't understand the sacrifice. So that's why she never really, I think that's why they never really talked about, they actually put it in the past. They said, you know, that's part of the past. It's part of why we are so lucky today to have what we have. But yeah, so my parents met on a blind date, got married. They met only near each other six months (laughs) and uh, stayed married for, you know, as long as I think over 50 years. Did they have expectations around what career path you were to take? Not at all. So I call myself like the accidental person in in life in terms of I I call my journey the incredible journey because I had no direction. So when I got out of school, I wanted to be a teacher, but there weren't any teaching jobs back then. And I remember my mom said, well, we don't really care what you do. As long as you have a college degree, whatever you do after that is all that really matters. So I had no role models in terms of, oh, we want you to go into business and we want you to go into medicine or we want you to do this, get that college degree. And then we just want you to know that you've got that. And whatever you do, as long as you're happy, that's all it was. Just as long as you're happy, you know, just, we're just grateful that you got the degree. So I didn't really have the Asian tiger mom, you know, like, you know, you're going to do this or you're going to do that because they didn't have that themselves. I think, I think a lot of that, you know, my parents just wanted us to have that college degree and that was it. And they never to this day till they both passed, I don't know that they really understood what I did. You know, I think my dad still thought I sold insurance and it didn't matter to them. And maybe that kind of gave me the freedom to be who I was in regard. I didn't feel like I always had to please them with the career side of it. I did have to please them, but you know, the things that we were brought up of our values, you know, around integrity and honesty and working hard and the work ethic, I certainly learned from them. And that was the most important thing to them. So, so you went, you know, you fast forwarding a bit, you go to college and I know that you spent some time in insurance and, yes. and your career. When did your passions for women advancement start? Well, I would say they started um, before I got to Deloitte. But, you know, when I was at the insurance company, at Paul River Life Insurance Company, I was the first woman salesperson in the history of the company. Like they actually said things like, we don't believe that women should be selling. But I had a mentor who was uh, Hispanic and I still keep in touch with him today who really believed that I should go into sales. And I think experiencing being that first woman made me want to 
help other women because I, it was so hard. You know, it was so hard to be the only woman in the room. It'd be so hard calling on all of these men, male customers. I didn't have one female customer at all uh, mm-hmm. when I was at the insurance company, unless they were administrative assistant, you know. So from that standpoint, I really felt, you know, I'm so lucky that I need to help other women. You know, I need to help other women find their way and be a mentor to them and and hopefully pave the way for them because we're not going to do it alone, you know, and there aren't going to be a lot of Vincent Benitez's in the world. That one man who really believed I could do it, regardless of whether I was a woman or a man, he saw something in me and believed in me. And those mentors and sponsors are hard to find if we all only depended on one of those to find one in our entire life or career, we'd be lucky. I think women have to help other women because that's the only way when we, when we were, we comprise more than half the workforce. How else are we going to get there unless we help each other? So I think I would say shortly thereafter, after I'd left Paul Revere Life Insurance Company, I said, what, you know, we're the other women and you know, I really made a more conscious effort to give women an opportunity. What was your secret to, in midst of just uh, navigating the sea of men and getting promoted outside of having a mentor, what do you think helped really cut your teeth there? I'd say being prepared. I mean, I, I really believe that I'm probably over prepared for everything in life. But I would say that I think going in feeling confident, and for me, that means really doing my homework. You know, so I don't expect anything to just happen. I feel that I have to earn it. And I constantly, even today, I would say, I feel like I'm always having to prove myself. I think, you know, knowing, and I feel vulnerable and I think it's healthy to feel vulnerable to, so that helps me find the, you know, time and take the time to really prepare because I want to have everything that I want to know, everything I need to know before I go into the situation. I'm not good at winging it. I'm not good at somebody who's just like, oh, I'm sure I've done that a million times, you know, unless I'm cooking something. Okay. I've done that a million times. I don't have to look at the recipe, but anytime I'm in a new situation, which was 99% of the time, you know, I, I really did as much research and preparedness as I could to understand the circumstances, understand the people, understand the dynamics that gave me confidence. Cause I think it starts with confidence and believe me, I have been spent much of my time not feeling confident. And anytime we get in a new situation, those butterflies are there. I'm on some boards today and I read every single page. I come up with my questions. I do all of that because again, I feel like I always have to earn my spot. And I do that by being confident. How did you balance the value of being prepared from a technical perspective with what we know is also important to, to your career and to leadership. It's the relationships that you build. Well, you know, I think I love people. Maybe that's really the part of it that I love learning about people. And I do believe that, you know, what I learned very early on in my career around sales is it's really not about the product or the service. It's about building trust and it's about building the relationship whoever is in the situation, whether you're trying to get a promotion or you're trying, it's really around what have I brought to this relationship and looking at it with that lens instead of, well, what can this person do for me? But I think that relationship building piece is critical throughout your career, whether you're 
trying to sell a, a, a service to a client, whether you're trying to you know, build a relationship with your boss or with a peer. I also think that I'm a big believer in, in you know, servant leadership and the fact that leaders are here to serve, not to boss everybody else around. So I just never really let the title or whatever it is get into my head. Like sometimes you do have to exercise that authority, but I think it's all about, you know, collaboration, peers, you know, because I think the greatest compliment, honestly, is if your peers respect you, you know, and you're not trying to make friends, you're trying to earn respect and trust. And those are two different things. You have trust and respect with friends, but you're not in there just trying to find a new buddy to go drinking with. You're in there to like build a trusted relationship that's reciprocal, because quite frankly, that's how mentors and sponsors evolve is when you build that trust and you do something for them, they're in turn are going to do something for you, but you have to earn it. It's always about earning. Right. You know, what I find is even with that preparation, though, there are times when what you're saying, you know, that whole mansplaining thing comes up, you know, how did you handle that? Or did you come across that being, you know, the only Asian American woman at the table? Oh, all the time. I mean, I'm surrounded. I'm on boards where I'm the only woman. Mm. So it's really around building those relationships with those individuals um, so that they respect you and and sound authoritative when you speak. Don't sound meek. And and but again, don't do what a lot of women do, which is try to over explain. So it's really more impactful. I really believe less is more. So if you have something to say, try to say it very succinctly. Yeah, Barbara, I can't agree more. I'm in meetings all day all the time with all men. I lead all men teams. Yeah. And it comes with, you know, how you handle yourself. You come out in presence and how your, your tone, you know, there are days when I'm tired. There are days when, uh, you know, you're not putting your best foot forward, but you can see right through the cracks when they're like, Oh, I don't know. And it's more of a double standard because then they question a lot about you as a leader, your leadership, you know, like last night, for example, I was very tired. I was talking to, I was in an all-men meeting. And it's almost like you have to come across very concise, very firm, right? Not too strong. I think there's a, there's a fine dance between, you know, running over their heads, right? Yeah. And saying, I'm the king in here. You're going to listen to me. This, has, this needs to be done today versus, you know, working with them, but also letting them know that you're the authoritative person and, but not challenging them at the same time. That's such a great point, Diane. And I, I've, you know, I've had many situations where people are kind of trying to end run me or talk about me or something. And I just, I, I just won't tolerate it. And, and whether I deal with it right in that, I don't do it in front. I don't believe in embarrassing somebody in front of others because that you can never really recover from. Because I could imagine how that would feel if it was me. So I would, I would say, okay, take it offline and kind of, maybe explain how this might be coming across if it's really, you know, terrible, but you know, it's so common. And so I just feel like, you know, you have to always have this sense of calm and composure around you because they don't really, especially with men, if you start to run off or just, you know, get, you know, more and more like loud or whatever, they'll just think like, you know, she's just insecure or she's just trying to prove herself. And so they're no longer listening to what you're saying if the tone is not there. Barbara, I want to talk a little bit about your your 23-year career at Deloitte and becoming the first Asian-American woman as a principal at the Deloitte 
uh, office. What are some of the challenges you specifically faced? And were they specific to the fact that you were an Asian American woman? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is really feeling comfortable speaking up. And I think as an Asian woman being brought up to kind of stay in the background and not necessarily be pushing the envelope a little bit is, is difficult because there's always that little voice that goes off in your head that goes, uh, don't say that, or, you know, you shouldn't, you know, you're, you know, you're not good enough, or, you know, just your role is to keep quiet and just listen and, and be kind of that model minority stereotype that people assume you're going to be. At the same time, I don't think I take it to the other extreme. I think there's a balance of what works with you personally in terms of your style and your personality. So, you know, that little voice out there that says not to say anything doesn't just become the one that becomes that dominates the room either. So I don't try to take it to the other extreme, but really find something that still works for me, but also within my comfort zone on the way that I want to be perceived or evaluated because I really feel that I'm a big believer in your personal and having a personal brand and whatever that brand is, that's what kind of comes into the room, you know? And I think that I'm still the same person. I'm still the mom. I'm still the, you know, secretary from years ago. I'm still, you know, all of those people come into the room when I come into the room. I, I just need to figure out which one am I in that moment, you know? And so you, I bring all of those things in, but in that moment, what role am I playing in that, in that room? And what things do I need to bring to that particular moment? What do you think sets you apart in being able to break the ceiling that many women and Asian women face? I would say, first of all, never giving up. Like I've always, I'm very goal oriented. So I think that, you know, you have to get out of your mind that, oh, you can't be that, or uh, that's too much, or just because nobody's done it before. And I think, you know, I think the the second thing is I'm not afraid to fail. And I think, uh, you know, taking risk. And so what if you fail? I mean, is that really change who you are? Or are you going to learn from it? Everybody has failures and it's really around, being able to pick yourself up and what you do with it. And, you know, and I think being able to take chances, you know, just trying to put all those stereotype things aside and, and just think of who you are as a person, who you, what, do you, what kind of expertise are you bringing to the table and trying not to have maybe the label of the Asian hanging over your head, even though everybody sees that you are, that's just one part of you. It's not it doesn't define you. And I don't, I don't think I let it define me. When I walk into the room, I was, oh, I'm sure they're just seeing this short Asian woman. Do you know what I mean? I'm just saying they're looking at, okay, I'm bringing this background. I'm bringing this point of view, or I'm bringing this experience. What am I bringing to that room and try to focus on that? And I think that, you know, I know this sounds maybe counter to what we want because now, you know, the thing is all of us are Asian and we, we want to bring that. But if you let that be the first thing that comes into the door, then all of that other stuff that comes with it comes with into that room too. all the stereotypes, all of, or the way I should be or I have to break that stereotype. So they see that I'm not just this quiet Asian that sits in the corner. So as you come into these situations, whether it be a presentation or an opportunity of meeting with a client, I guess I would probably put that as part of my brand, but I don't put it as the front part of my brand. I try to put what expertise am I bringing? What knowledge am I sharing? Why am I in this room to begin with? 
then try to lead with that versus I'm the token Asian woman in the room and, you know, and then letting all those things kind of get in the way of being, of adding value to either the conversation or the meeting. What I do remember about you, about you, Barbara, was one of the ways about your leadership style was it was very inviting. There wasn't this like, you know, I'm the partner and you're, <laughs> you're the consultant analyst. It was almost like it was dual respect and the playing field was very, was even. Thank you. The other thing I remember about you is your keen sense of style. And I know we <laughs> talked about this earlier before we started recording on the show. So did you, you tell me about that? Because how did, so when you show up, you have a very, I, I we saw Diane and I were doing some research and we know that you're a shopaholic, you yeah. love fashion. <laughs> how I did that play into how you show up in a room? So it's all about having being your best self. And it's all about confidence. If looking good adds to that in terms of your level of confidence and and your ability to strike a relationship or start a conversation with somebody, then then do it. If you don't really care how you look, then and that doesn't add anything. I I don't I'm not a critic of that because but I do think that, you know, for me, it's all about the whole package. One of the lessons I learned along the way, and I'll never forget it, is one of our human capital events many years ago, and I was a presenter. And, you know, when you go to these offsite meetings, everybody's at that time, you know, we didn't have what we call business casual now, but it was back then it was a big deal to just be able to wear khaki pants and a sports shirt or, you know, pants or not have a jacket on. But I remember that our leader at the time said, anybody presenting has to come in business attire. And we're like, really? Because for your presentation. He said, you know, like you're going to a client meeting. He said, because you will present differently if you're in business attire than if you're up there in jeans and a t-shirt. And that really made an impression on me in terms of how it added confidence to me if I feel like I'm looking my best. And I have outfits, you know, that I feel really good in. And I have stuff that I don't really feel that good in like most of the stuff I've been wearing during COVID, but I just, you know, it's, it's easier. I'm lazy. I just put that on, but you know, it does impact how you come across in terms of how you feel about you. And therefore, are you really able to be in the moment? So I think, you know, style is, is personal and I just happen to love fashion, but I love it more because of how it makes me feel in terms of how I might be able to be successful in a meeting or in a situation. And I, I think if I don't have that, then I think I come in thinking, okay, I've got my PJs on. I'm really not paying attention. And I'm just, you know, I didn't do my makeup today. So I think I'll just leave my camera off, you know, because, so am I really engaged? So I think it's, for me, it's a connection around confidence and level of engagement for me personally. I did find myself putting on lipstick, even if it wasn't <laughs> a client meeting, if even if I was just working at the desk during the pandemic, it just kind of made you feel. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's really about how, I think the secret is how does it make you feel about you? And if you're bringing your best self, you know, to that situation, you know, and it's that, that magic or that secret sauce for everybody is different. For me, it's about what I'm wearing. And if I feel good that day, if I have energy, you know, and I have that, you know, that I'm just a hundred percent there or at least 99%, 95% there. Mm-hmm. So turning to, you talked about your daughter. Yes. In consulting, I know there's a lot of travel. 
So how did you balance motherhood and marriage and still stay the course on the professional achievements that you wanted for yourself? That's such a great question, because I will be very honest with you that there was a time when I two years in, maybe two and a half years in where I was ready to leave Deloitte, actually had another job offer. And I was stressed. I was building a practice. There were three of us in San Francisco. We had no clients. I mean, this was like really very basic, you know, a startup in a very large company. And so for me, you know, I had to make a choice. And I remember thinking, you know what? I can't, I can't do this. I only have one kid. I'm not spending enough time with her. Allison was like seven at the time. And I've just felt the stress of it. And I, I remember going in and telling the, you know, partner, you know, I don't think this is working for me. I, I actually feel like I need more time with my family. And they said, well, why don't you just take it? And I just said, well, I didn't think I could because frankly, I need another senior manager. I was a senior manager at the time. I said, we're short staffed. I, we don't even have an admin. I mean, I'm doing everything. And, and they said, well, and I said, and I feel like if I were to go to this other job, I would have a staff. I'd have people to do these surveys. I don't have to do everything personally. And they said, well, but you didn't ask for any of that. So a big lesson for me is I didn't ask. And so I think what I've learned along the way is the answer is already no, if you don't ask. So always ask and don't be afraid to ask. So I learned a big lesson there. So I think for me, having the ability to ask for what I wanted. And I think, you know, or not being afraid to ask, that was a big lesson and a big turning point for me, really made a difference. And I don't think I ever was in a hurry. So, to, you know, it took me five years to be a partner. Other people, you know, were much younger. I came in, this was my third career. I started in insurance and, you know what I mean? So this was my third career. And I, you know, I was already 40 when I joined Deloitte. So it was, you know, mid-career. I wasn't like, all like into like, oh, I've got to be a partner by X time. Or I didn't have these like dates hanging over my head. I would think I would have been happy not being a partner. I would, I just didn't even, that wasn't even on my radar. I wanted to see if I could build something from nothing. And then, you know, I could be on my merry way, but I was not willing to trade out my family. So at the same time, I just said, I'll do whatever it takes, but my family comes first. You know, if I look back now, you know, of a 40-year career, I I would say that my greatest success is my family and having that intact and a great relationship with our daughter and still married. We still have fun, but I I was not, I really felt that that was the most important thing to me that I didn't want to lose. And I'd left another job because of that at one point in time earlier when I first had Allison you know, I had left the, the job at Blue Cross after only 18 months because it just was too much stress on my family, my family life. But I think that, you know, you have to be able to know when to say no. Mm-hmm. And you have to also be able to say, okay, well, then I guess I won't get that promotion this year, but I'm okay with that because I still want to be able to do this. So I was very, very fortunate, but I think a lot of it is the asking and finding the right culture where that's going to be accepted. So I think that's really relevant to women today, which is posing new challenges for women advancement. And so what do you see as critical to ensuring that we don't lose ground with women advancing into the executive levels? Well, I mean, I think it's about finding that balance. And, you know, I, I, what I 
saddened by the fact that I feel that there's been some real setbacks, particularly during COVID for women. And it's like running the women's initiative at Deloitte. You're, it's always going to be there and you're always going to have to keep, keep it in front of people and make it a deliberate and intentional you know, statement. And I think for women today, I look at my own daughter who wants to have a family. And, and but I, I just think understanding that you can have it all, but it's all about the balance. You know, you may not be able to be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and have, you know, five kids at home unless you have a lot of help. If you've got that, then you can do it all. But it's really around finding those points in which it can blend. Because I think now we're in a situation where there the lines between work and home, maybe due to COVID, have been blurred. So it's actually, you know, for women to advance and still being able to keep that might not, I'm not saying it's easier, but it's probably more acceptable today because people have had this year and a half of which they've been able to tend to their families. In fact, their families came first, mm. you know, and you know, you got kids at home and you've got to homeschool them. Then you can't be like, oh, I'm sending them off to school and I can now do this during the day. So it's really put the test on women to be able to balance it all. I'm absolutely confident that women can do it, but it's about choice. And it's about making choices, but I don't think it's like, I can't have a career if I want to have a family. It's really around having a little bit of both and being able to make it so that you have, again, that fulfillment. And it's different for women than men, you know, and I know that. And so the thing is, is that as a woman, as a mom, I didn't want to miss out on any of that, you know, and, but I know plenty of women who didn't have children and I understand that too, but they made other choices. But I, I think women today have to be able to find out how that balance is going to work and not be afraid to make that choice in favor of whatever is the priority at the time. If it's family because their kids are young, it's okay to say that. And you need to find a place where you could have that versus if not, you're going to be a miserable per miserable person at work. So, and, and I don't think you'll be able to advance if you're not able to stand up for yourself. Barbara, our last question is about your Japanese culture. How does your Japanese culture play into how you lead and engage with others? So that's such a great question. And I, I really love to think about those elements. But if I think about the Japanese culture and how I was brought up, both my parents being Japanese, it's really around kind of three things, you know, having a strong work ethic. I saw my parents work very, very hard and, you know, just knowing that that's what they had to do. I think the second is, you know, kind of being respectful of others and then also serving others. I mean, I think if you think about the Japanese culture and bowing and honoring other people and very respect, that ultimate respect. And I think that's what I've really tried to take into my own leadership style. So, you know, I, I mentioned the word, I think earlier on the word gambaru that I heard uh, growing up, which really is, you know, recognizing that struggling is actually part of the journey. It's never, ever giving up. So it's about resiliency and perseverance. But I think, you know, as a leader, where I would take that is it's really important to help others kind of see the future and not get too focused on what's happened today that might be a setback. And it's not about just being, oh, everything's going to be fine and not having ideas on how it's going to be fine, but being able to understand that, you know, it's okay to fail. You know, it's okay to have, you know, to take risks. And sometimes those things don't work out. What's important is what you do with it. Like once you do fail, it's what, what did you learn? And what are you going to take forward? That's going to help you, you know, be even more resilient the next time. Because I think you have to have failure 
in order to truly succeed. If you don't, then you never really understand how you got somewhere. I think in general, the Japanese culture is very optimistic. You know, my parents, you know, I inherited from them just the sense of optimism. You know, and I, like I told you earlier, you know, I didn't even know that my mom had been in one of the internment camps and she never talked about it. I think she just looked at that as part of her life, you know, and just something that you had to do to have a better life ultimately, you know, and I think anyone who's been part of an immigrant family, you know, everybody who comes to the United States for a better life, what they left behind was probably much more an easier lifestyle. But they sacrificed that to come here. And I think that that's something that we can all learn from in terms of going for what's better and having that sense of hope and helping people find solutions and that everything that happens isn't going to be forever. Just like the good things aren't forever, the bad things aren't either. You know, and I think as a leader, it's really important to instill that in others to help people look to the future to what can we do next then? What, okay, here we are today. This is like the worst, but what are we going to do for going forward that's going to make it better? And what are we going to learn from this? And I think the last thing, you know, kind of ties with the whole respect and serving others, but it's really about gratitude. And one of the things that I think the Japanese live a very simple life. It's, you know, at the end of the day, it's really about being appreciative of what you do have and making the most of it. And that's something that I think I've learned from the Japanese culture is that appreciation for the simple things in life, the garden, you know, having a little space, you know, even in these tiny little houses that most of the Japanese live in, in Japan, they always have a garden or they have a pot or they have a plant because they really appreciate the living things, you know, it's symbolic to them. And I think that that's something that I try to bring myself back to because it's very easy to get caught up in all the wonderful things that we all have access to, but it really comes down to what's inside, you know, what drives you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the stories on our podcast as much as we enjoy unveiling them to you. A lot of time and detailed editing goes into bringing these stories. A big thank you to our sponsor, Renica Digital. Renica Digital is a full service digital marketing boutique offering cloud, web, app, and social media services. If interested in serving as an ally to help us continue bring stories to the spotlight, amazing Asian American woman trailblazers, please visit us at www.identityunveiled.org and reach out to us for sponsorship and donation opportunities. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Until next time, be safe and be well.